0: This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueiredo.
1: Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at HumanistReport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueiredo and this is the 91st episode of the program. Today is April 21st, and before we get started, I want to thank all of these kind individuals who decided to sign up to support us on Patreon, on PayPal, or who joined HumanistReport.com's PayPal membership option. So towards the end of the episode, I will be thanking each and every single one of you because I think it's important that you all know how much I appreciate your kindness. So on today's episode, first, I'll give you an update about Bernie Sanders' and Tom Perez' Unity Tour, and I'll then talk about how progressives are pressuring Democratic politicians to support a Medicare-for-all system. We'll also talk about Sean Spicer's incompetence, Ivanka Trump's corruption, and Bernie Sanders' true feelings about Hillary Clinton's I'm with her slogan. Additionally, I will discuss humanitarian crises that the media are currently ignoring. And we'll also talk about just how evil the pharmaceutical industry really is. And finally, I will catch up with Tim Black and him and I will talk politics. So, all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Hopefully, everyone who is tuned in enjoys the episode. The Unity Tour featuring Bernie Sanders and Tom Perez kicked off this week, and as you would have expected, there were progressives who were enthusiastically waiting to hear Bernie Sanders speak. However, when it comes to Tom Perez, the new DNC chairman, well, they made their opinion of him (laughs) pretty clear.
2: right, like, come on, all right? So maybe you came though, because you're curious about the new DNC chairman and the future of the democratic policy.
1: That's not the best way to start off this event, if you ask me. However, when you turn to an article in the Washington Post, they give you a better sense of the crowd's reaction. They state, As the rally's hundreds of attendees waited for Sanders, the grumbling sometimes crashed into view. After the state's stage filled with volunteers, mostly young, a heckler yelled, Why aren't the burning delegates up there? Some of the senator's 2016 delegates were in a special seating area with VIP badges. A local Democratic Party leader said that the new chair, meaning Perez, would be arriving soon. There were a handful of booze. A state senator told the crowd that the political system was rigged. A heckler yelled, "Like the primary." So clearly progressives are not happy with the DNC and they're certainly not happy with Tom Perez considering he was one of the people that worked with the DNC to smear Bernie Sanders during the primaries. So progressives are perplexed by this. I'm perplexed by this because I don't understand Why Bernie Sanders has agreed to go on this unity tour, considering he demanded that the Democratic Party—I mean, he's been consistently demanding that they carry out certain reforms, but they have yet to carry out these reforms. So, I mean, when you suggest that progressives should unify behind a party that's resistant to change— What you do is you surrender to them. You give up leverage. So, I mean, I disagree with Bernie Sanders' decision to go on the Unity Tour, but when you look at the first joint interview between Bernie Sanders and Tom Perez, I mean, Bernie Sanders, he just seems incredibly excited to be sitting next to the man that helped smear him during the primaries. I mean, look at his face right there. Doesn't that seem like someone who is incredibly excited to be working with someone who he hates? But during this interview, um... I I was expecting to come away with more clarification as to why it was the case that Bernie Sanders and Tom Perez were working together, because they're seemingly on opposite sides of the spectrum in the Democratic Party. And I really received no clarification here. I thought that it was really interesting because both of them said things throughout the course of the interview that were completely contradictory. Now, some question whether or not this unity tour was the start of Bernie Sanders potentially joining the Democratic Party. But he shot down this possibility early on in the interview. Do you consider yourself a Democrat?
3: No, I'm an independent and I think if the Democratic Party is going to succeed, and I want to see it succeed, it's going to have to open its doors to independents who are probably, there are probably more independents in this country than either Democrats or Republicans. And it's going to open its doors to working people and to young people and create a grassroots party. That's what we need. And what the party has got to focus on are the most important issues facing working people. That's the decline of the middle class. That's the need to take on the billionaire class and Wall Street and the insurance companies, and bring people together, A, against Trump's absolutely reactionary agenda, and B, fight for a progressive agenda, which, among other things, includes a Medicare for All single-payer program.
1: So Bernie Sanders is not going to become a Democrat, which is good news for progressives because they haven't done anything to earn his loyalty. He is the most popular politician in the country, so he has no incentive to jump on the Democratic Party's sinking ship. So I'm glad that he has agreed to not become a Democrat, but throughout Bernie's answer, namely when he talked about abolishing closed primaries— Tom Perez hasn't given us any indication that he's actually going to be doing that. And look, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seemed like Tom Perez actually recoiled when Bernie Sanders said that. And you could tell it's because this isn't something that he actually wants. Now, Tom Perez was asked whether or not he supported the idea of a Medicare for All system. And this was his answer, if you can even call it an answer.
4: Is the DNC on board with Medicare for All single payer, Tom?
5: Well, you know, we, we want to make sure that health care is a right. It's not a privilege. And that's why we fought for the Affordable Care Act. That's why we want to continue to expand it. We want to make sure that everybody and, and the Affordable Care Act has made tremendous progress. We have more work to do. And I think the unity, Chris, that we've shown in the, the recent efforts by uh, Trump to repeal the Affordable Care Act have been a, a, an energizing force for Democrats, independents, others who share the values of inclusion and opportunity and the and health care is absolutely. A right in this country, or should be. Uh, it shouldn't be a privilege. And, and obviously, we believe that as Democrats. Republicans don't appear to believe that.
1: So, some people might listen to Tom Perez there and feel encouraged by what he's saying because he is, I mean, make no mistake about it, he's using Bernie Sanders' rhetoric. However, he's not actually saying that he's going to support a single-payer system. This is what he said verbatim. We want to make sure that healthcare is a right, not a privilege, and that's why we fought for the Affordable Care Act. That's why we want to continue to expand it. But that's a contradiction because if you do in fact believe that healthcare is a right, well, the only way to make it a right and codify it into law as a right is is to adopt a Medicare-for-all universal single-payer healthcare system, whatever you want to call it. But he's not unequivocally stating that he will, in fact, be endorsing this idea. So even though he's co-opted the language that Bernie Sanders is using, he's still not getting on board with a Medicare-for-all system. At least he certainly hasn't indicated that throughout the course of his answer. So... This is really troubling because he's saying one thing and he's trying to imply one thing when in actuality, he's not committing to a universal healthcare system at all. And that's not okay. That's disingenuous. That's misleading. Now, besides just using doublespeak and platitudes, one of the two things that Tom Perez actually does during interviews... Well, he was asked about the perception that progressives have of him, about him basically entering the DNC chair race exclusively to crush progressives. Because if you don't remember, Keith Ellison announced that he would be running for DNC chair about a month before Tom Perez announced it. And once Keith Ellison began to gain momentum and grassroots support, well, the establishment kind of pushed him forward. And he was really foisted upon us as a choice because they didn't want the Bernie Sanders wing of the party to get any control. So this was how he responded to the allegation that he was trying to put down the grassroots wing of the party.
4: Tom, you, you know, you, I saw you speak last night in, in, in Maine, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And you're talking to people yep. in a lot of cases who there's a significant part of the party that feels like uh, you were a stalking horse for the establishment, that you're there to sort of put down the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, you represent uh, the, the one faction in this, in this battle, people booed you. What, are you. what is your message to those folks who are skeptical, particularly of you and what your leadership represents there?
5: Well, we had, I thought we had a very good day yesterday, Chris. And what, and the reason we have a good day is we have shared values. You know, We all believe that America works best when everyone has a chance to succeed, when we have shared prosperity, not just prosperity for a few. I believe that anyone who works a full-time job should make a, a livable wage and live a middle-class life. That's what the Democratic Party believes. We believe in access to higher education. Those are our values. And when we put those values into action,
1: that's when we do well as Democrats. So his answer was troubling. And I say that because even though he really didn't answer the question and he only responded with platitudes, well, the fact that he didn't answer the question tells us a lot about his intentions. If you're not carrying water for the establishment and you weren't there specifically to maintain control for the establishment wing of the party, you would tell them unequivocally that you're on the side of the grassroots. But Tom Perez can't speak to that because he hasn't reformed the DNC in any meaningful way. That would signal to us that he's ready to embrace the Bernie Sanders wing of the party and the Bernie Sanders policies. And look, let's be completely clear here about the establishment's intentions. The whole reason why they wanted Tom Perez there instead of Keith Ellison was because Tom Perez is there to facilitate the continuation of the cash flow to the Democratic Party. He's supposed to protect the status quo. He's supposed to make sure that the faucet is still turned on when it comes to cash that is flowing into the party from lobbyists, from billionaires like Haim Saban. That's exactly what he's supposed to do. And Tom Perez gave us an indication that this was, in fact, his intentions when he refused to condemn the oligarchy who is rigging the system against us, who's buying our politicians. Take a look at what he had to say.
4: Do you see the world that way, Tom? Is that the Democratic message? Do you think it's important, as the senator sitting next to you just said, to say the ruling class, his words, this country, are basically screwing average folks? Well, listen,
5: you know, when we put hope on the ballot, Chris, we win. When we allow our opponents to put fear on the ballot, we don't do so well. I believe that an economy has to work for everyone to be... uh,
4: Hillary Clinton, this is my point, Hillary Clinton uh, ran on hope. She ran on hope. It was a very well, hopeful message. And and there, the 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 point is, do you have to name the enemy? That's my question. Do you have to say these are the people that are screwing you?
5: Well, listen. I don't. I think you're creating a false choice, Chris. What we have to do as uh, Democrats is to articulate very clearly that Donald Trump's vision for America is a vision for the one top one percent of the one percent.
1: If we put hope on the ballot. We win. All right, Tom, let me just, let me say this. If Chris Hayes thinks that you're using too much platitudes, mother of God, you're using too many platitudes. You need to actually answer maybe just one question substantively. Let's make that a goal for Tom Perez. Answer one question truthfully without using doublespeak and without using any platitudes. That's the challenge that I'm posing to Tom Perez. I don't think that he could do it. Now, just getting back to the overall point of this unity tour this interview did not give me any clarification as to why this unity tour is going on i don't know why bernie sanders agreed to go on it because they're clearly both on different pages they have entirely different messages so if anything after watching this interview i i'm coming away even more confused than i was prior to watching it when i thought it would yield at least a little bit of uh, clarification. So I don't know why Bernie Sanders is choosing to do this. Now, if you try to put two and two together and look at the states that they are touring, you might think, well, you know, maybe it's the case that they're trying to um, campaign in red states to drum up support in special elections. However, that wouldn't necessarily make sense either when you consider the fact that the DNC completely ignored James Thompson in Kansas. They offered him little to no support until it was too late. So that's not an explanation that I think is persuasive to me. Now, Bernie Sanders was actually asked about this and asked about people's skepticism towards the DNC in an interview with Jake Tapper. And this was his response
4: Are you concerned
5: that the DNC, uh, they're doing this big red t- state tour with you, but. A lot of people criticized uh, the DNC for not sending enough resources to Kansas. So it's great that they're doing this. Well, display. let's be clear. Let's okay, go be ahead. clear.
3: I mean, the point here is that I think all over grassroots America, whether they're Democrats, independents or Republicans, people are perceiving that Trump did not tell the truth in his campaign, in terms of what he would do as president of the United States. He was going to drain the swamp. Well, he's in fact appointed more billionaires to his cabinet than any president in history, et cetera, et cetera. So what I think has happened now in Kansas, it is true that the Democratic candidate lost. It is true that the Democratic Party should have put more resources into that election. But it is also true that he ran 20 points better than than uh than the Democratic candidate for president did in Kansas. So, what you're seeing in Kansas, what you're seeing in Georgia, I believe you're going to see it in Montana, I believe you're going to see it all over this country is that many so called red states, working people are going to wake up and say, wait a second, Republicans want to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and education, and they want to give hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks to the top 1%. No, that's not what we elected Trump to do.
1: So, overall, I think that maybe what Bernie Sanders is doing, if I can speak for Bernie Sanders, is he's trying to go on this tour so that way he can break down this red-blue state dichotomy, which he thinks is false. However. Bernie Sanders doesn't need the DNC to tag along with him to do that. Bernie Sanders was already making progress. I mean, this is an anecdotal example, but when you look at the town hall he held in West Virginia, he convinced a room full of Trump supporters to support a single-payer health care system. So Bernie Sanders doesn't need Tom Perez to do this. If anything, Tom Perez is going to be counterproductive because we all know that Tom Perez is a corporatist tool of the establishment. He doesn't want a single-payer system, otherwise he would have unequivocally stated that He's in favor of that. So, this is my message to Bernie Sanders. Bernie, as one of your most vocal supporters, I don't know why you're going on this Unity tour and I don't like it. But let me tell you this millions of people support you, and we love the fact that you are continuing to talk about the issues because you're actually having an impact on the national conversation. I think without Bernie Sanders, without you, We would not be talking about a Medicare-for-all system right now. So what Bernie Sanders is doing is excellent. But Bernie, if going on this unity tour is really an attempt by you to reform the Democratic Party, your effort here will not work. If you really want to reform the Democratic Party and think that it's possible, I'm skeptical that it is at this point, but if you truly believe that the Democratic Party is salvageable, Bernie... Here's what you got to do. You have to get tough. You can't continue to play nice with them. You can't go on this unity tour and suggest that you want us to align behind their corporatist agenda because that's not going to happen, Bernie. If you really want the Democratic Party to change, you have to show them some tough love. You've got to abandon them. They have to lose some elections if they're ever going to learn their lesson. So I, I still don't get this unity tour. Uh, I'm not getting off the Bernie bus because of it. But certainly, I think that Bernie Sanders owes it to his supporters to explain to us why it is the case that he's going on this unity tour. Because Tom Perez and the DNC, they are a symbol of everything that's wrong with the country. So, I, I don't get it. I still don't get it. And this interview and anything that Bernie Sanders really said doesn't make it that much more clear. So, I wish that we had some clarification. But... I really am worried that this will hurt Bernie Sanders' image among progressives. It makes it seem as though you're abandoning us for the establishment, and that's not good. Now, I don't think Bernie Sanders is doing that. I believe that he does have altruistic intentions, but Bernie Sanders, if you really want to reform the Democratic Party, be tough on them. Nobody can dispute the fact that the Affordable Care Act has been a huge failure, And the only way that you can end this healthcare debate once and for all is to move towards a Medicare for all system. And what progressives are now doing, now that the Affordable Care Act has failed, is we are drawing a line in the sand. We are saying either... Our representatives support a Medicare for All system or they need to get out of office and we will vote them out. So the push for a Medicare for All system got a huge boost recently when Representative John Conyers introduced H.R. 676, the Expanded and Improved Medicare for All Act. The bill currently has 98 co-sponsors and progressives are doing everything they can to make sure that that number grows. And that number has, in fact, grown, thankfully. So, I mean, they're falling like dominoes. And at first, what we really saw was a lot of representatives uh, getting asked at town halls whether or not they would be on board with H.R. 676. But now, people are asking their senators as well whether or not they would support a Medicare for All system. And now that we know Bernie Sanders will be introducing a bill— that would create a Medicare for All system, people want to know, will their representatives get on board with this bill? So, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto held a town hall in Las Vegas with her constituents, And one of her constituents, named David, explained to her that as someone in the military, the Affordable Care Act didn't actually expand coverage to his daughter because he had TRICARE insurance. Now, TRICARE insurance only applies to the children of military personnel if they're enrolled in school full-time. Now, unfortunately, David's daughter passed away because she was unable to get coverage. The Affordable Care Act left her out. It didn't cover her. And she died as a result. So David told Senator Cortez Masto his story and his daughter's story, and he asked her this very simple question: "Will you please
6: uh, support Medicare for all?" Uh,
0: and uh, if, my, if we live in a country where we have, have Medicare for all, my daughter should will still be alive. Thank
2: you. Thank you, and thank you for coming. Nobody should die because they cannot access health care, and nobody should go bankrupt because they can't afford it in this country. And if we're starting with that as a premise and a solution to health care for everyone, then we're going to work together in a bipartisan manner to figure out how we make that happen. But I'll tell you what, it does not start with repealing the Affordable Care
0: Act. (laughs)
2: And for me, I can guarantee you this, It is about improving and working on what doesn't work right now the affordable care act and making sure we're getting everyone access to affordable health care in this country
1: so i want to pinpoint the keywords that she's using there that all democrats are using she said everyone should get access to health care well access doesn't actually translate into health care access to insurance means nothing if you can't afford it David's daughter had access to healthcare technically, but she couldn't get insurance and she died. So after hearing David's poignant story, her answer was no, I will not get on board with a Medicare for All system. That's effectively what she said. Now, thankfully, her constituents were not having it and they were not willing to let it go.
2: Why haven't you come out on the record in favor of Medicare for All? Yes! yes. Insured. and it's the cheapest plan that's it thank <laughs> you <laughs> no um, first of all let me just say i i think with the affordable care act what works we should keep absolutely and, and for the very oh, reasons you said no. what works no listen
1: so understand that she was still dodging the question but if you think her constituents were done talking about medicare for all that was not the case
2: yeah, so, so I mean, we, you haven't answered the question. Yeah, so let Why me you this way. It? And let me answer it this way. Let me answer this because I appreciate that. And I know many people think that their uh, Medicare for all is the answer. But, uh, and, and it may be. Let, let, me, let me just answer this. It may be, but here's the fight. Here's the fight. What do we do with all of those people that are have uh, uh, health care now under the Affordable Care Act? Uh, and, and how do we do that? How do like, we do that? Live. I mean, right now, we are fighting with the Republicans just to ensure we keep health insurance for the people who have it now. They want to repeal all of it. So what? And they're in control of Congress. They control fear. the White House. It's fear. It's fear. It's fear. It's fear. It's oh, no, no, I'm not. Listen, I, I think we should have health care for everyone. But the challenge is we have to be realistic we can't we can't with the republicans in control of congress and the white house
1: so her response is incredibly frustrating because she is saying it's impossible that you know now that republicans hold a majority in the house in the senate they hold the white house however when democrats had a supermajority, when they held the white house we got a Republican light healthcare plan that Mitt Romney implemented in Massachusetts. So don't give me this nonsense that all we have to do is give Democrats a majority and you will provide us with healthcare. That wasn't the case. You botched your chance at giving us a Medicare for all system. So I don't believe you. Now, uh, she says here, what do we do with all of those people that have insurance through the Affordable Care Act now? We give them Medicare for all? I don't. I don't. I don't get what the question is. There, you're, you're trying to imply that if we implement a Medicare for all system, that the people who have Obamacare would lose their insurance. That makes no sense whatsoever. The whole point of a Medicare for all system is that it applies to every single person. There's not a single person left out. Nobody dies or goes bankrupt anymore because they don't have insurance. So. Her answer is incredibly disingenuous and misleading. She is misleading her constituents. So all that she did there is lie and obfuscate when her constituents continued to call her out. But if you think that that was enough for them, if you think they were willing to let it go, you're still wrong because they were going to push her on this again.
7: HR676 puts the health care in the hands of of the people, not the um, insurance industry. We're even getting Republicans on board with this because it saves money. If we knock out the profits of the insurance companies from the 64% that the U.S. government is already paying of this pie, U.S. government pays 64% of all the healthcare expenses. If we knock out the insurance company, the amount of money difference between what we would have to pay insurance and what we're paying right now is nearly insignificant if you run the numbers which I I'm just an eighth grade teacher I'm not a mathematician I run the numbers and I looked at it and Bernie Sanders said the same thing universal health care is what we need and what we deserve. Yes. Why right. you want to be safe I will support HR 676 because what harm does it do to support the bill What harm does it do to take the challenge up with the Republicans instead of you know you guys approve of these cabinet members and stuff like that? Why say yes? Stand up and say no. I dem exited. I am now a Green Party member because they do stand for universal health care. I want you to stand for universal health care. Has that
2: been introduced on the Senate side? So it hasn't been
7: introduced at all. No, but we have. We just got Nina Titus to approve of it here. You know. Okay, I will absolutely take a look at
1: it. I will. Absolutely take a look at it. Okay, so we made some progress. However, what I need to know is if she's actually going to take a look at it or if she just said that to get her constituents off her back since they continue to pressure her on this issue. I, I need to know. So, if you're also curious, you can ask her if she supports Medicare for All now because it has been a couple of days. Her number is 202-224-3542. Now, you may also want to ask her if her decision to not support a Medicare for All system is contingent on the fact that she took two hundred and seventy thousand dollars from health professionals and a total of four hundred and fifty five thousand dollars from the health industry overall because i think that her constituents deserve to know whether or not she's on their side or the side of her donors and since i'm curious i want to call and find out hopefully i'm calling early enough uh to where i can actually get an answer and talk to someone but if not i will leave a message because they do hear these messages
7: hello this is Catherine Cortez-Masto, and thank you for calling my Washington, D.C. office. I am so sorry we're not able to answer your call right now, but I look forward to hearing from you. Please know that you can also contact my office by going to cortezmasto.senate.gov. That's cortezmasto.senate.gov. If you would like to leave a message, please do so after the tone. And if you would like a response, please include a phone number, email, and mailing address where I can reach you. Thank you again for calling.
1: Hello, Senator Masto. My name is Mike Figueredo. And first of all, I want to thank you for attending a town hall with your constituents in Las Vegas, Nevada recently. Uh, And during this town hall, your constituents repeatedly asked you about whether or not you'd support a Medicare for all system. And you said you would look into it. And it's now been a couple of days. And we have yet to hear back from you about whether or not you are in fact going to be supporting a Medicare for all system. And so... We're wondering if your reluctance to support a Medicare for All system at this town hall was contingent on the fact that you took $270,000 from health professionals and a total of $455,000 from the health industry overall. So the question is, are you actually looking into it, or did you just say that so that way your constituents would stop asking you about a Medicare for All system? So I think that your constituents deserve to know. They voted for you. They supported your campaign, and I think that you should be responsive to their needs and endorse the idea of a Medicare for All system and come out publicly in support of it. Because this would be the only way that we end the healthcare debate once and for all and make sure that people don't die or go bankrupt because they don't have insurance. The Affordable Care Act did not work. It's a failure. And now we need every single senator. It's incredibly important to get on board. So if you could respond to me and let me know if your position has changed at all, my email address is mike at humanistreport.com. Uh, I would love to hear from you, so thank you so much. If you can get back to me as soon as possible, that would be great because this is a very urgent matter. Thank you. So, I told you what happened at this town hall, and I showed you the footage. A lot of what was discussed at this town hall had to do with healthcare. However, if you read local media, you wouldn't get that impression. I want to share this headline with you. Cortez Masto talks Trump budget, immigration reform, and labor unions at Las Vegas Town Hall. There's absolutely no mention of healthcare, and they even state this. The nearly two-hour town hall featured about 250 attendees, mostly supporters of the Democratic senator. Attendees applauded, shouted, and gave a standing ovation when Cortez Masto was introduced. The applause continued throughout the evening as Cortez Masto answered questions. Again, the article makes no mention about how her constituents called her out because she refused to state unequivocally that she supports a Medicare for All system. Now, if Cortez Masto, I mean, she's new, she was just elected in 2016, if she wants to know how to make these town halls go more smoothly uh, and actually go smoothly, not like, you know, this fluff piece for her is trying to make you think it went, here's what you can do. Here's how you can talk about healthcare to your constituents.
8: There's a bill before the House right now um, called Medicare for All, but it's H.R. 676. Uh, I'm a co-sponsor of this legislation. I believe in principle that we have to provide this basic level of health care to all people supporting universal health care.
1: Now, during Tulsi Gabbard's town hall, there were people that literally showed up wearing Team Tulsi shirts because people know that if you're representing them, you're genuine. You don't have to beat around the bush. They don't have to ask you literally four different times if you're going to support a Medicare for All system to no avail. So, it is absolutely crucial that Senator Catherine Masto gets on board. Again, her phone number is 202-224-3542. Call her up and ask her, Which side is she on? Is she on the side of her constituents or is she on the side of her donors in the health industry? Be polite. Ask her to please support Medicare for all because people are dying as we wait and as Democrats continue to defend the failure that is the Affordable Care Act. I don't even have to tell you guys. You already know that there's been a lot of momentum at town halls when it comes to Medicare for all. Progressives are going to their town halls of their senators, of their representative, and they are asking them to state their position on Medicare for All. Now, we recently learned about the position of a couple of prominent senators, and one of them is Claire McCaskill of Missouri. Now, she was asked if she supports Medicare for All, and, spoiler alert, it was a hard no.
9: Um, would you support a single-payer plan if it came to a vote? Um... I, I I'm going to disappoint a lot of you. This is kind of how I roll. Um, a lot of you want me to say yes, and I would say if a single payer came up to, for a vote right now, I would not vote for it. And here's why. Um, we have a huge debt, and we are looking down the barrel of a demographic bubble in Medicare as it, as it is. My generation, there's a bunch of us, I'm 63. I'll be on Medicare in a couple of years. It's already going to be a struggle for our country to keep up with the health care costs of the baby boom generation. And so going to a single payer system right now I don't think is realistic, and I don't think it would be good for our debt. I think there's some steps that we would have to take for that to ever be a possibility. And one is we we're going to have to figure out the debt. Because with every rise of interest rate points, it's, you have no idea how hard it's going to be for our government to function, for the things that you take for granted to actually come to pass if the interest rates go up four or five points. Because the interest on the debt will swallow things that you care about very much. So now, having said that, there are some things I would support down that path. For example, uh, if the Republicans – and I won't go into Trump Care right now and Obamacare right now because in every town hall I've gotten a question on it, so I'll wait for that question. But in the single payer space, let's say that there is a county in Missouri that has only one insurance company on the exchange. I want everybody to have a choice that needs to buy insurance. Some that doesn't get insurance at work and is not on Medicare or VA benefits or Medicaid. And so, if somebody doesn't have a choice. I would like to see a plan where they could buy in to either Medicaid or Medicare to provide a choice to them in those counties where there's only one insurance company on the exchange. I think that might be a good idea. But that would require not higher taxes, but that would require premium payments by the individuals who wanted to do that.
1: So that was an unacceptable answer. Claire McCaskill is seemingly more worried about debt than the health care of American citizens. Well, if she actually is worried about debt, then she's denounced Donald Trump's militarism, right? Because when he decided to drop 59 Tomahawk missiles on a Syrian airfield, that cost $500,000 per missile. So she's come out to denounce that unequivocally, right? Well, actually, she released a statement on April 7th saying this, I'm supportive of these strikes against the source of barbaric chemical weapons attacks on civilians. I just hope it wasn't an impulsive reaction, but rather part of a broader plan and strategy. So someone who's worried about the debt supports the missile strikes. And also she states that she hopes that it is part of a broader plan and strategy, meaning an extended war. Now, for someone who's worried about the debt, I don't have to tell her that an extended war would cost potentially trillions of dollars. I mean, we put Iraq on a credit card. But she supports these strikes. She supports dropping $500,000 bombs on another country, which is an act that's unconstitutional and illegal. And mind you, this country did not attack us. That's what she's in favor of. And she claims to be worried about the debt. Well, even if it's the case that Claire McCaskill is worried about the debt, in fact, you're prioritizing the debt above the lives of American citizens because people are dying and that's not acceptable, Claire. So this is what she's saying. If we're killing people, we shouldn't worry about the debt. However, if we are extending health care to all citizens so that way they no longer die because they don't have health care, then we need to start thinking about the debt. That's what she's saying. This is something that is indistinguishable from Republicans. They talk about, you know, how are we going to pay for health care when they drop bombs in the Middle East enthusiastically? That's what Claire McCaskill is saying. She's saying that war is okay. Don't think about the debt there. But when it comes to health care, you better make sure that you damn well have an action plan as to how you're going to pay for it. And she recently stated that, you know, she's worried that she would be primaried because progressives don't think she's pure enough. Well, Claire, if you honestly are telling me that you think war is more important than providing health care to citizens, if you think that the debt doesn't matter if it comes to the death and destruction of countries in the Middle East, North Africa, you're not just impure. You're a bad person. That's unacceptable. She is everything wrong with the Democratic Party. Yet, she has the nerve to beg Bernie Sanders supporters to come to her rescue in 2018. And think about how she started to answer that question. She said, I'm going to disappoint a lot of you. You know, this is kind of how I roll. Really? You're supposed to represent them. They elected you to represent them. Their tax dollars pay for your salary. So if you know that you're a disappointment, then what are you doing to change that, Claire? That's unacceptable. Now, she also uh, said that, you know, she, she's trying to be generous to progressives here. She said she kind of supports moving towards a single-payer system. So, what she would do is, you know, in certain regions of the country where citizens only have access to one insurance uh, company, well, she would expand that option so that way they have access to more insurance options. How kind. That does nothing for them. That is nothing for them, Claire. People still won't be able to afford said insurance regardless of how many options you present them with. But I'm going to tell you what this is really about. Claire McCaskill took nearly $818,000 from the health industry. So because she is bankrolled by the industry that wants to keep ripping you off, she's unwilling to support a policy that would literally save lives while claiming to worry about the debt. But it's not about the debt, is it, Claire? This is about you doing the bidding of your donors. Now, if what she said in that last clip wasn't absurd enough for you... She said, or she implied, certainly, that if you have a problem with the way in which Washington is, you know, inextricably linked to multinational corporations and there's so much corruption, and, you know, politicians take money from large multinational corporations and turn around and do their bidding, she said, you know, we'll chip in five bucks if you don't want us to be corrupt.
9: You know, the next time somebody complains to you, if you're a Republican here and they complain to you about, you know, me... Um, then tell them to give five bucks to my opponent. If you're a Democrat here, somebody complains to you about uh, the Republicans say, "Well, give her five dollars." If more people give a little, then we won't be so dependent on the big dogs giving a lot. So uh, take the take the price of an expensive cup of coffee, and 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 no matter who you believe in, Democrat or Republican, put it on somebody you believe in because that's the best way to clean up money in politics
1: if more people give a little then we won't be so dependent on the big dogs giving a lot well that's not how this works claire if you want us to chip in one you actually have to do something for us and two you have to stop taking the corporate donations First, because what incentive do we have to spend our hard-earned money on you if you will turn around and do the bidding of people who donate more money to you? So if you were serious about raising money via grassroots exclusively, you would stop taking money from the health industry. You wouldn't have taken that $818,000 from the health industry. Now, if that wasn't enough for you, To show you how Claire McCaskill is the quintessential corporate Democrat. She also recently came out against Bernie Sanders' free college plan, saying, quote, government can't pay for everything except for war, though, right, Claire? Because the government, you know, if it comes to providing health care to citizens to make sure that they don't die, you know, we can't pay for that. We need to be cognizant of the debt. But if it comes to dropping bombs on uh, Syria, Well, then the government can, in fact, pay for that and you support them paying for that. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to call Claire McCaskill and demand that she either get on board with a Medicare for all system or we will primary her and vote her out of office. Her number is 202-224-6154.
2: Thank you for calling the office of United States Senator Claire McCaskill from the state of Missouri. Our normal office hours are Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have reached this message during those hours, we are unfortunately unable to answer your call due to a high volume of income calls. If you are a constituent calling with a comment, your call is important to us. Please leave a message including your five-digit zip code or visit us at mccaskill.senate. Gov and click the email Claire button. If you are calling to make a scheduling request, please visit mccaskill.senate.gov and click on the schedule a meeting button in order for us to respond to your request in a timely manner. Thank you again for calling the office of United States Senator Claire McCaskill.
1: Hi, Senator McCaskill. My name is Mike Figueredo, and I recently... Uh, read a headline in The Hill that states that you recently reached out to Bernie Sanders supporters saying, I need you and I want you because you want us to help you uh, during your 2018 re-election campaign. Well, let me say this. Uh, I recently found out that you came out against a single-payer healthcare system. You spoke out vocally against the Medicare for All type system that Bernie Sanders wants. And We will not be coming to your rescue unless you change your position and agree to support a Medicare for all system. And she states that she's not in favor of this because of the debt. However, we know that Claire McCaskill took nearly $818,000 from the health industry And that influenced her decision. Now, she also came out in favor of Trump's strikes in Syria, which cost $500,000 per missile. So, what I'm gathering here is that Claire McCaskill supports dropping bombs on the Middle East, but when it comes to saving the lives of American citizens and creating a Medicare for All system, then we have to think about the debt. So, after hearing that and listening to her call... We will not be supporting her. Progressives will, in fact, be doing everything we can to primary and defeat Claire McCaskill. However, you can change this. You can come out in support of a Medicare for All system and you will gain an ally in us. But if you're not going to represent us, if you're going to continue to represent your donors in the health insurance industry... We will not be supporting you. You will be defeated and lose your job. Again, you will lose your job if you do not represent the people of the United States of America. So get on board. Get on board or we vote you out. (laughs) I think I used that 10 seconds um, pretty wisely. So um, yeah, call, be polite. Just let her know that she will lose her job if she does not... Get on board with Medicare for All. It's that simple. Some Democrats have recently taken a lot of heat at town halls because they refuse to get behind a Medicare for All system. And it's not just that they're getting booed at town halls. Their constituents are literally calling for them to retire if they don't support a Medicare for All system. Case in point.
2: How are you going to help support single-payer health care?
1: Well...
6: If single-payer health care is going to mean complete takeover by the government of all health care, I am not there. If single-payer health care means trying to work out some of the problems that are existing, we've got an immediate problem that I learned about just coming up issue, which means that 6 million will get dropped if insurers quit. Changing the subject. So, it's going to be... This is the existential domestic issue, no question about that. That and climate change are the two big issues that we have to face this year. (laughs) Neither is easy. Question on that side? Okay, next question. what Bernie is proposing, it is a takeover of all medicine no, in, in, in the United States. And I don't favor that. What I favor is taking a couple of problems in the Obama bill and working those out. And this has to do with the individual uh, market, which is highly problematic. That's <laughs> Well, okay, I've got I to ask. understand. I understand if you want to stay after this.
1: Yeah, you see that's what happens when your constituents know that you're not behind them. They boo you and they call for you to retire. And it's because, you know, they know you're a sellout. They're not calling you a sellout just to insult you. It's because quite literally Diane Feinstein is a sellout. She took 2.1 million from the health industry over the course of her career. And we know that she won't back a Medicare for All system and uses right-wing talking points because she doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize the profitability of her precious donors. That's what this is about. So if senators like Diane Feinstein don't want to be booed by their own constituents at town halls, I'm going to teach you what you do, or in fact, Tulsi Gabbard is going to teach you what you need to do uh to get them on your side. It's pretty simple. You just gotta represent them. So watch this and Diane, you're gonna want to take notes.
8: There's a bill before the House right now um called oh it's Medicare for All, but it's HR six seven six. Uh and I guess the the simplest way to talk about it is that it basically expands what um is currently Medicare but it increases the eligibility to everyone to make sure that everyone has access to basic health care services. I'm a co-sponsor of this legislation. I believe in principle that we have to provide this basic level of health care to all people supporting universal health care. There are some parts of the bill frankly that I think could be improved I think we've got to talk about how these bills are paid for. We've got to make sure that Medicare is actually enabled and empowered to negotiate with prescription drug companies, which currently Medicare is not. And again, we've got to just make, we've got to make sure that that access not to insurance but to health care exists. And there is a difference. And when you listen to some of the debate that's happening in Washington, a lot of people may say, oh, "Of course I support access to coverage for everyone but when you ask what does coverage mean how you may define coverage may be very different than someone else and this has been one of the uh, most painful things that I've seen um, with the Affordable Care Act which has done a lot of good in many ways but what has been concerning in some other ways is that some people who think that they have health care coverage when they actually need it they go in and see that they've got a $10,000 Ten or $15,000 deductible, that's not coverage, especially for people who may have been uninsured who couldn't afford health care in the first place. So we have an opportunity as a country, as they're looking at health care, as they're talking about repealing and replacing, let's replace it with something that is truly a health care bill for the people that cuts the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies out of the drafting of the bill, which we have seen. <laughs> Unfortunately, we saw this with the Affordable Care Act. We definitely saw this with the Republicans' American Health Care Act that recently failed. Uh, and in both instances, those signatures ended up... Uh, on the backs of people who need care the most uh we've got our work cut out for us with this legislation with continuing to see how do we improve this how do we get feedback from our providers and folks in the community uh, on this and this is something that i'm looking forward to continuing to engage on
1: that right there is how it's done that's how you talk to your constituents about medicare for all that's how you show your constituents that you're on their side and not the side of your donors in the health insurance industry so Tulsi Gabbard do you want to know how many times she was booed during that town hall zero times do you want to know how many calls there were for her to retire during the town hall there were none in fact, many people showed up wearing team Tulsi shirts to show their support to their representative that they love so much. And in fact, she's not just representing her constituents when it comes to healthcare. She's representing them on a range of issues. So seeing that she is one of the only people in Congress to have a level headed response to the debacle that happened in Syria, this was what one of her constituents went out of his way to do.
10: Thank you. Yeah, that's mostly what I want to say is thank you for all that work. And um I'm I'm so grateful and thanks to everyone.
1: To have your constituents Go out of their way to show up to a town hall just to thank you. That shows that you're doing something right. You're just, you're telling them that you're not a sellout. You're telling them that you are on their side and not the side of your donors. So I want to get back to Diane Feinstein here. Uh, when was the last time Diane had anyone show up to one of her town halls just to thank her for representing their interests? Has it ever happened, really? I don't know. Because Senator Dianne Feinstein has been in Congress for about 20 centuries, and she has consistently been one of the most conservative Democrats in the country on a range of issues, NSA spying, and now certainly healthcare. And that's not acceptable. Dianne, you are holding the country back. You're holding all of us back by your refusal to support a Medicare for All system when you should be one of the main champions of it. You are supposed to be... Someone that's from the so-called left-wing party. And the fact that you won't support something that all modern countries have, that even their conservative countries or conservative parties support, that's unacceptable to me. The United States is the only modern country where that type of talking point that Diane Feinstein used where you say, you know, I don't want a government takeover of healthcare, is acceptable because there are certain things that are off the table that we shouldn't profit from off of that we shouldn't economize and healthcare is certainly one of them so citizens they don't necessarily care about you know big government big business what they want is the delivery of policy that benefits them they support uh, social security they support medicare and they already like medicare so all you have to do is expand medicare to everyone but you don't want to do that so i think it's important that we um all come together. And we put pressure on these Democrats that are reluctant to change, that are resisting change. And I really wanted to show you guys how Tulsi Gabbard talked about healthcare because we got to focus on more than just the negative. Because even though a lot of Democrats aren't getting on board, there's currently 98 co-sponsors to HR 676. That's amazing. That's great. And this is in large part due to the fantastic work of Justice Democrats And especially the grassroots activists that are calling their representatives. So if you have a representative that is not on board, please give them a call. Let them know that you will vote them out of office in 2018, primary them, if they do not get on board. And if you do have a representative, feel free to call them and thank them if they are supporting HR 676 because I think that if they know that we're watching what they're doing, then they will be more inclined to listen to us and be more responsive to us. Because, look, when it comes to Medicare for All, this is non-negotiable. We are refusing to take no for an answer. If you don't support Medicare for All, we don't support you. It's that simple.
8: The good news is all of you are here. <laughs> and we're in this together. <laughs> that is truly good. That is truly good. And and at a time when things look dour, Uh, really, truly being able to represent all of you in Washington, being able to represent the Aloha State and understanding the true meaning of Aloha and doing my best to bring that to Washington every day is a very special thing.
1: Last week, I told you guys about Representative Denny Heck of Olympia, Washington, and how during a town hall event, his constituents asked him why he hasn't signed on to co-sponsor H.R. 676, which would expand Medicare to all citizens in the country. And he has yet to co-sponsor this bill and get on board. Now, when I showed you that clip, I wasn't just showing you it to simply uh, tell you about Denny Heck and where he stands. My goal was to make him support that bill. So if you want Denny Heck to support that bill, his number is 202- 225-9740 Two two five nine seven four zero. 9740 so if you want to encourage him to do the bidding of his constituents and support that bill support what washingtonians are obviously in favor of then give him a call and politely tell him that now denny heck isn't the only representative that was confronted about a medicare for all system in fact there was another representative that's democratic that was also confronted
7: will you support single-payer uh medicare and medicaid for all
6: Yes, I I support single payer. Uh,
4: That's a place where I think we ought to be, uh, and I think we got a long way to go. Uh, I think we got a very long way to go. Um, The Affordable
0: Care Act was uh, a step in the right direction, uh, obviously, and look how difficult that was. So, yes, I support single
4: payer, uh, and we got a long way to
1: go. That was Representative Anthony Brown of Maryland, and his answer, of course, you know, it was perfect, right? That's right. However, the problem is that this town hall occurred a month ago and he has yet to support HR 676. So I don't necessarily know whether or not he's aware of this bill. Presumably he is because how could you not be aware of it if you are in support of single payers? So I think that it's important that we, you know, seeing him as a potential ally, we call and remind him that HR 676 is a bill that would bring the policy that he supports to fruition. So, I want to remind him, his number is 202-225-8699.
7: Honorable Anthony Brown is not available. Record your
2: message after the tone. When you've finished, you can hang up or press 1 for more options.
1: Hello, Anthony Brown. Uh, my name is Mike Figueredo, and during a town hall about one month ago, one of your constituents asked whether or not you would support a Medicare-for-all single-payer healthcare system, and you said that you are in support of the system. Now, first of all, I am calling specifically to thank you for your support for this bill uh, or for this type of policy because it would, in fact, save lives. However, on the subject of a bill, uh, there is H.R. 676 676- that was introduced by Representative John Conyers, one of your colleagues. It currently has 98 co-sponsors, and for some reason, even though you support single-payer, I don't see your name on this bill as one of the co-sponsors. So I wanted to call to make sure, one, that you know about this bill, and two, that you would be supporting this bill. So I just ask that you co-sponsor this bill right away, because it's important that we actually gain some momentum for a Medicare for All system, and we could really use your support right now. So again, thank you so much for supporting the idea of a single-payer system. Now, I'm just asking that you walk the walk and co-sponsor HR 676. Thank you so much. So, you know, that's really all you got to do. We just have to remind him he is someone who was a potential ally, so I don't want to be too rude to him. Um, I mean, we should always try to be polite um but yeah i think that he is a potential ally hopefully that will persuade him if not you know we'll keep calling him now here's what i find inspiring progressives aren't just showing up to uh town halls of democrats they're showing up to town halls of republicans and asking them to support a medicare for all system as well
9: why not single payer uh, you talked
6: about
9: <laughs> insurance then it's just a sick population buying insurance, and there's no way that's going to be affordable. Yeah. Right. Access doesn't matter if you can't afford it. Right.
0: Right. 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 it um,
5: single payer is something that I, I can't get behind.
6: Why? Just, Why? Being Why? Up, just being honest with you. Why? Uh, Why? Access
5: issues. Worry wow. me about
7: that. Talk to <laughs> Justin Trudeau about it. Choice issues and so we're going to disagree
1: on that one. <laughs> 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 this isn't just happening with respect to health care. It's happening uh, on a range of issues. Constituents are asking their representatives, their senators, to support certain ideas. They're putting pressure on them if they're not representing the interests of the people who got them elected.
6: For you two, kindergarten kids up there. On all of these things. He is delivering results, and I would say,
4: (laughs) if you don't, I think it's time to repeal and replace you in 2020. Do your
6: job!
4: As far as as I'm aware, the president says he's still under audit, and he said he's got a list.
3: Of the House and the Senate. So do your job! Yeah, do do your job! A steady source of leadership.
4: Trump can't Mm -hmm. do that!
1: So make no mistake about it, times are changing. What we are witnessing is the beginning of a progressive political awakening in the country. Uh, I I just feel it. You know, I I don't have any evidence. There's no way to quantify whether or not, you know, this is happening, with the exception of looking at the uh, public polling and how, by and large, Americans support progressive policy ideas. But I, with all this momentum that we see at the grassroots level— At the rate we're going, we will make progress. The floodgates are bound to burst sooner or later, and we will get uh, substantial, excuse me, progressive change. So I find it incredibly inspiring. If you're one of these people showing up to town halls, thank you so much. And look, if you showed up to your town hall and asked your representative or senator about Medicare for All, send me the video. I want to know what their answer was. Uh, send it to Kyle of Secular Talk. Send it to David Packman, because it's important that we make every single representative and senator in the country support a Medicare for All system. Uh, so, you know, we're making headway. We're, we're making progress. We just got to keep at it. According to a new book published called Shattered, we got some inside information into Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign. Now, there was a particular portion of this book that I wanted to talk about that is recently receiving quite a bit of media coverage, uh, and I couldn't not talk about this, so... According to The Hill, they explained that in the book, members of the Clinton campaign reached out to Sanders' aides in late September to share a script of an ad they wanted the Vermont senator to record. In the ad, Sanders would tout Clinton for her education, healthcare, and minimum wage proposals, and he would talk about how the then-Republican nominee, Donald Trump, was wrong about climate change and the economy. At the end of the script were the words, I'm with her. It's so phony, Sanders said. I don't want to say that. Sanders did not use the slogan in the ad. The Clinton campaign eventually decided to not use the ad on television after learning that voters had some doubts about whether the Vermont senator fully supported Clinton. People felt that it was him delivering his message, not Hillary's, said one Clinton aide familiar with focus group responses. People didn't feel that it was an authentic pitch for her and what she wanted to do. It even had some backlash and folks saying that he's not really supporting her. So, there's really two components to this story. One is Bernie Sanders' awesome and hilarious response to her stupid slogan. And two, just how ungrateful Hillary Clinton's campaign was. I mean, he dropped out and endorsed her and campaigned his ass off for her and yet they were still ungrateful. It just shows how entitled Hillary Clinton really is and was. So, um, you know, when it comes to the issue of the slogan, Bernie Sanders said exactly what we were all saying. Saying I'm with her is one of the most ridiculous things you could possibly tout as your slogan because if you're a politician... You are running so you can represent voters. So it should be you who's the one saying, I'm with you, not the other way around. So you shouldn't be begging people to support you. I I mean, it's just pathetic, but I don't care if you think we're with you. You should be with us. And we would have been with you, Hillary, if you actually gave us something, if you actually made us believe that you were going to fight for us and not your donors on Wall Street. And not your donors in the defense industry. So, um, yeah, the slogan was a disaster. It was incredibly, I, I, I don't understand. Like, if they, if they focus group tested everything, then why didn't they focus group test, I'm with her? Because clearly that wouldn't pass a focus group. I don't know how anyone would think that's a message that resonates. Oh, what's this slogan? I'm with her. I mean, even if you create a campaign slogan, that's relatively vague. Like Obama, his, his slogan was hope and change. That was pretty vague, but it worked because we knew what, it, what he stood for. Hope and change. He's given us hope that government will change and not do business as usual. He's given us something different than George W. Bush, who was one of the worst presidents, if not the worst president in American history, but... um I don't. I don't know what I'm with her means, and I don't care if you think we're with you. So that was a disaster. But speaking to the incompetence, uh, or excuse me, speaking to the ungrateful nature of Hillary Clinton's campaign, I mean, it just shows you that she was so entitled. Bernie Sanders, I've said this from the start, he was viewed as an inconvenience from the beginning. Anyone who was going to be challenging Hillary Clinton was basically going to be steamrolled by the Clinton machine and the establishment. They didn't want competition. They didn't want the Democratic primary to be competitive. So the way that they viewed Bernie was, you know, how how dare he get in the way of Hillary Clinton? This is her turn. I mean, at first she was the slogan was I'm ready for Hillary. Like, oh, we're ready. We have to just openly support Hillary because that's what we're getting. She's inevitable. And voters don't like inevitability. We don't like being told that we're getting something, and we tend to rebel against that. So, I love this. The fact that Bernie Sanders said this is phony, it's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. Of course it's phony. It's and Everything about Hillary Clinton is phony. I don't know who Hillary Clinton is. I don't know what she really stands for. I mean, if I could really get her alone and have a conversation with her about policy— I don't even think then i would be able to gather anything about her political positions because everything about her is calculated everything every response that she gives you is going to be contingent on what political polls say the american people believe so bernie sanders is saying exactly what we were all saying it's phony and we don't like it and you know if you have no message you're going to lose that's why hillary clinton lost so They really need to be more introspective and look at everything that Hillary Clinton did wrong, but I mean, they're not willing to do that. All they want to do is point the finger at everyone but Hillary Clinton. They point the finger at James Comey, at Russia, when really, I mean, think about this. If Russia hacked into Bernie's emails and released them, that wouldn't influence the election because Bernie Sanders isn't guilty. So the fact that Russia even could influence the election if they did allegedly uh, hack into these emails... It shows that Hillary Clinton is guilty. It's an inadvertent, you know, admission of guilt. So they need to get their act together and acknowledge that Hillary Clinton was a flawed candidate. She was damaged goods. Democrats rejected her in 2008 and they rejected her again. And if she runs in 2020, guess what's going to happen? Fill in the blanks. They will reject her. Um, So, you know, this story was incredibly fascinating to me because Bernie Sanders, (laughs) he's right. It is phony. So, I think Ivanka Trump might be the one person in the world that's benefiting more from nepotism than Chelsea Clinton because she is learning very quickly that it pays to have your dad be the president of the United States. Now, the problem with this is that since she is... Uh, advising her dad since she's working in the White House, this sets up a huge conflict of interest. So, The Guardian explains as Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping dined on Dover Seoul and New York Strip Steak earlier this month, thousands of miles away in China, a government office quietly approved trademarks that could benefit the U.S. president's family. On the day the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, met the Chinese leader, China granted preliminary approval for three new trademarks for her namesake brand, covering jewelry, bags, and spa service, according to official documents. Her company, Ivanka Trump Marks LLC, has been granted four additional trademarks since her father's inauguration and has 32 pending, according to the Associated Press, which first reported the new approvals. Ivanka Trump no longer manages her clothing, jewelry, and accessories brand, but still owns the business and is frequently seen wearing clothes from her own collection. She has put her business in a trust run by family members. Ivanka has so many China ties and conflicts, yet she and Jared appear deeply involved in China contacts and policy. I would never have allowed it, Norman Easton, a former chief White House ethics lawyer under President Barack Obama, told the Associated Press. For their own sake and the country's Ivanka and Jared should consider stepping away from China matters. U.S. law prohibits government officials from handling U.S. government matters that could enrich their business or their spouses. Ivanka Trump's products are made almost entirely in China, and U.S. policy on trade or China's currency could benefit her financially.
9: I like nepotism.
1: So what she's doing is she is working on Donald Trump's Chinese policy while one advertising her clothing brand because if you're wearing it you are in fact advertising your own clothing brand um and two she is still in control of her businesses because she hasn't placed them in a blind trust so if you have your businesses under the control of a family member that doesn't distance you from it enough and now her lawyer is arguing that she doesn't have to recuse herself from dealing with china Even though she has business there. Wrong. Make no mistake about it. This is a conflict of interest that is so brazen that it's just despicable. And according to Eric Trump, she's actually advising her father. And, you know, she has a pretty big influence on the actions of his administration because it was her that actually influenced President Trump to conduct his bombing on a Syrian airfield. So she is raking in cash, you know, in to the tune of millions of dollars, while having a large say on uh, government policy, specifically with regard to China. That is completely unethical. It's not acceptable. This rich, oligarchic, spoiled brat that was born with a silver spoon in her mouth, who is now advising the president, when she has absolutely no experience whatsoever when it comes to government or foreign affairs, well, she's now profiting personally from a business that was created specifically because her last name is Trump. I like nepotism. It must be really nice. You're born to wealth. You do nothing, and uh, you you get a job in government. You get a business that is incredibly profitable. I mean, Jesus, this is this is what an oligarchy is. Ivanka Trump, you are not the princess. Okay. You have to abide by the same ethics rules as everyone else in government, and even though that's a joke because most of them don't, well, we're still going to hold you accountable. You don't get to just come into government and be corrupt while you still have your business. I mean, you already have millions of dollars. Your dad's a billionaire. Do you really need more money? Is your business that important to you that you have to be corrupt and not recuse yourself from china dealings even though there's this huge conflict of interest it's unbelievable so for those of you who are you know cheerleading ivanka trump as someone who is a more reasonable voice within trump's administration uh she's not reasonable she already encouraged him to bomb another country that didn't attack us and now she is profiting uh off of her dad being the president. This is not okay. You are entrenched in corruption. And either recuse yourself from dealings with China or remove yourself from the White House. It's that simple. I recently talked about how the United States military sent an aircraft carrier to the Korean Peninsula as a show of strength in response to an upcoming missile test of the Kim Jong-un regime. Now, in response to this news, the Un regime threatened war with the United States because they viewed this show of strength as a provocation. Now, the problem is that the United States didn't actually send an aircraft carrier to the Korean Peninsula, as the White House press secretary stated. So, according to Raw Story, last week, news broke that President Donald Trump had ordered an aircraft carrier to the Sea of Japan in a purported effort to intimidate the North Korean government, but it turns out that the carrier was actually headed in the opposite direction. The New York Times reports that the USS Carl Vinson was sailing toward the Indian Ocean at the time the US announced that it was heading to the Sea of Japan, despite the fact that Sean Spicer said on April 11th that the carrier would serve as a huge deterrence to North Korea. The Times notes that questions arose about the validity of the administration's claims that it was sending the carrier to deter North Korea after the Navy on Monday posted a photo of the USS Carl Vinson sailing through the Sunda Strait in Indonesia, which is thousands of miles South of the Sea of Japan. So obviously, there are questions that need to be answered. Why is it the case that Sean Spicer would say that uh, the United States is sending aircraft carriers to the Korean Peninsula to serve as a deterrent to presumably dissuade North Korea from testing nuclear weapons? Why would he say that if it wasn't actually going to happen? This was his response.
4: Does the president believe that he might have spoken too quickly on this uh, location of the
10: vessel um, before the it was actually? President arriving? said we have an armada going towards the peninsula. That's a fact. It happened. It is happening, rather. Sure. Yeah.
0: Sure. John, I just want to follow up
8: on that. Um, you know, obviously, when the president of the United States says there's military hardware going to a region in the middle of a crisis on the Korean Peninsula, the allies of the United States are. Encouraged. When that happens to not be the case, they can interpret uh, that as a false encouragement. So, how is this White House explaining to South Korea and Japan that, in fact, during the buildup and the actual DPRK missile launch, there was no USS Carl Vinson? No,
10: but well, respectfully, Jessica, I would ask you to to, um, either touch base with PACOM or the Department of Defense. The the statement that was put out was that the Carl Vinson group was headed to the Korean Peninsula. It is headed to the Korean Peninsula. Um, It'll arrive there. What's that?
7: Uh, it's headed there now. It wasn't headed sure. there last Sure, no, no, no.
10: Week. but that's not. But that's not what we ever said. We said that it was heading there, and it was heading there. It is heading there. Um, so that that remains. An impression
7: that allies have. I, but
10: that's that's. I. If there's an impression, um, then I, that's not. Then there should have been clarification from people who were seeking it, but I mean, PACOM put out a release talking about what its ultimate destination was going to be, um, and that's where it ended up. Caitlin,
2: well, why did the administration never clarify? Because it definitely the intent and media reports was that it was headed there now, and now it's there. But, to but the that wasn't later. with
10: all due respect. That's not my. We were asked you a question. Well on it. I know. No. No. No, that's not true. What I was asked was what what signal did it send that it was going there? And I answered that question correctly at the time, that it signaled foreign presence, um, strength, and a reassurance to our allies. That's a true statement. Um, you're asking me why you didn't know better. I, I don't know. That's a question that should have been followed up with either PACOM, or the Department of Defense. But the question, the only question that we were asked was what signal it sent. And I think we answered that very correctly at the time.
2: I think it was a little misleading. No one found out
10: about it until a picture was posted on a page. What do you mean? What what part is misleading? I'm trying to figure that out. We were asked a question about what signal it sent. We answered the question on what signal it sent. Uh, I'm not the one who commented on timing.
2: The misleading is that people thought it was headed there now, and now it's going to be there weeks later. They thought it was already headed I, I, there. But wasn't. again, that's the, exercise, but I, I, I understand
10: the there. question, right? But what I'm getting at is, um, it, it, it was announced that it was going, it will be there. Um, we were asked simply a question on that. I think all other questions should be asked of the Department of Defense. John.
1: So let me get this straight. Apparently, it is now headed towards the Korean Peninsula, but it wasn't headed there when he implied it was heading there during a time when it most likely would have been heading there um, as a show of strength when they were going to be testing a nuclear weapon. And then he has the audacity to blame members of the media for this and say, well, if if you were confused, why didn't you ask for clarification? That's not the way that this works, Sean Spicer. You are the White House press secretary. You are the conduit with which information flows from the White House to the media and to the American people. If you mislead the press, then they in turn mislead the American people. And what you did do, in fact, is not something that we can blame the media for. And Trust me, the media is guilty a lot of the time, but this is not one of those instances. And he acts as though he doesn't even know how his statements could have been construed As uh, confusing or misleading. You said that it was headed there as a show of deterrence at a time when North Korea would most likely be testing nuclear weapons. That makes every single person think. That it's heading there as a show of strength, to flex, to provoke them. That's what the United States typically does, not necessarily with North Korea, but with other countries as a show of strength. Now, I want to revisit what the military simultaneously asserted when Sean Spicer made these misleading claims. So, the New York Times reports... Military and intelligence officials said the timing of the ship movement was also intended to anticipate a milestone event coming up on the Korean Peninsula, the anniversary on Saturday of the birth of Kim Il-sung, North Korea's founder and the grandfather of the country's current leader, Kim Jong-un. North Korea has a history of testing missiles and generally taking provocative actions during such events. But the USS Carl Vinson wasn't actually headed there at the time it was headed in the opposite direction and now sean spicer is claiming it's headed to the korean peninsula so uh are you sure about that sean is it actually going to the korean peninsula this time and if you're wrong again will you in turn blame members of the media because you misled them i want to explain why this is incredibly problematic Because of the actions that Sean Spicer said the White House was taking, North Korea threatened war with the United States. As the White House press secretary, it's incumbent on Sean Spicer to inform us about the actions of the Trump White House. You don't get to blame others if you mislead them. You're the one that's supposed to provide us With the clarification. So he's not taking responsibility for misleading the American people. The international community was also misled. So let's put this in perspective. Because of Sean Spicer's incompetence, a rogue country threatened war with the United States. Our international allies in Southeast Asia, South Korea, Japan, were misled about our actions. And again, another country threatened war because Sean Spicer is incompetent. Now, look, maybe it's the case that you can blame someone within the Trump administration because they didn't communicate clearly enough to Sean Spicer what the intentions of the Trump administration was. However, you're the White House press secretary, Sean. Your incompetence almost caused an international crisis. It almost caused war. I can't begin to explain how unacceptable that is. So either Sean Spicer get his shit together or Trump must fire him. If you're going to be this incompetent, if you can't get it straight, if you aren't able to clearly inform the public about what the Trump administration is doing, you do not belong in the position of White House press secretary. Because again, you are the conduit with which information is flowing from the White House to the American people. You can't say things that are misleading. You need to be very clear, especially when it comes to foreign policy matters, because, oh, I don't know, it could cause a war? So, again, I've got to remind you how crazy this is. Because of his incompetence, North Korea threatened war with the United States. Unacceptable. Sean Spicer must be fired, because if you are incompetent to the extent that you pose a danger to the United States and the world and South Korea, you've got to step down, you've got to resign, it's unacceptable. Attorney General Jeff Sessions recently indicated that he would not be cracking down on states with recreational marijuana after all, and he says that this is because the Justice Department simply doesn't have the funds needed to enforce federal prohibition laws. Now, I thought that that was relatively persuasive, I thought that that was probably part of the reason why he decided to back off, but I also thought that it was because, I mean, if you decide to take on marijuana, this is just an uphill political battle. And this is because, according to Pew Research Center, they found that 57% of Americans—that's a majority—supports the legalization of recreational marijuana. And when you break it down demographically, a majority of all generations, with the exception of respondents from the silent generation— Want marijuana to be legalized, so by and large, Americans just don't buy into this notion that marijuana is dangerous, and it's time that we remove it or at least reclassify it from the Controlled Substances Act. Now, I thought that that was part of Jeff Sessions' explanation as to why he didn't want to take on marijuana. However, he may be more clueless than I initially thought. I think I was giving him too much credit by thinking that he didn't want to take on this political battle because, according to him, he's surprised with how much Americans love their marijuana. The Washington Times explains Attorney General Jeff Sessions on Tuesday said he's surprised Americans aren't overwhelmingly embracing his widely reported stance against marijuana. All the while, recent polling reveals a majority of voters do in fact support legal pot. When they nominated me for attorney general, you would have thought the biggest issue in America was when I said, I don't think America is going to be a better place if they sell marijuana at every corner grocery store, Mr. Sessions told attendees. People didn't like that. I'm surprised they didn't like that, he added. You were surprised by that, Jeff? Really? If you honestly are telling me that you were surprised by that, you are more out of touch than any of us could have ever imagined. Because, I mean, public support... Even if you don't look at a single poll with respect to marijuana legalization, you can just gauge the momentum for it when you look at the states. They're falling one by one like dominoes. I mean, you started with Colorado and the state of Washington. They legalized recreational marijuana in 2012. Two years later, Oregon, Alaska, more states fell. Now, California, Washington, D.C. legalized marijuana. And this doesn't even take into account the trends when it comes to medical marijuana. The American people don't like being told what to do. And if you're conservative, if you're in favor of liberty and you constantly talk about this big government boogeyman, then shouldn't it just be a no-brainer that you're in favor of marijuana legalization? It makes no sense to me that conservatives consistently take the stance that is anti-marijuana. I mean, times are changing and society is leaving Jeff Sessions behind, but as someone who is a representative, or I mean, he he was a senator, so he was a representative of a large number of people. So he has a duty. I mean, it's incumbent on him to keep his finger on the pulse of America. You should know where the American people are headed in terms of policy. So to, to say that you were surprised is idiotic. Your fear-mongering over marijuana does not resonate with people. The days of reefer madness are long gone. This is not a time when uh, the American people will just believe any and everything that the government tells them. We are in the age of information. The internet exists. We've all smoked pot. We know it doesn't kill you. And if you're against it, That's fine, but if you don't support the right of citizens to uh, smoke pot, then you don't get to call yourself a small government conservative. You don't get to call yourself a champion of freedom, regardless if you come from the left or the right. So, the fact is that marijuana will be legal in all 50 states one day. It's just a matter of time. You see, you know, every couple of years, more and more states hold referendums and they get approved, and that's going to happen even in Jeff Sessions' state. It's going to happen. So, you know, regardless if you don't want to accept it, marijuana will one day be sold at grocery stores. And if you truly are against marijuana, you should be thankful because that will make it more difficult for children and minors to get marijuana. So Jeff Sessions is someone who is so out of touch with the American people that he should be embarrassed. I mean, the fact that he would admit that he was surprised by that. (laughs) <laughs> it's crazy to me. I mean, at least if you're that out of touch, just say, "Look, I know that, you know, I may be an old-timer and I'm out of touch with a lot of youngsters nowadays, but you know, I don't think marijuana is something that we should be promoting." At least say that. But I mean, I mean, I- <laughs> you're surprised that we're not with you on your bullshit archaic stance on marijuana. It's marijuana. So, uh the fact that you're surprised, Jeff, is It just speaks to how out of touch you really are with the American people. You should be embarrassed. You really should be embarrassed because, I mean, do you not look at the trends in the country? Do you not pay attention to elections? Do you not watch the news? How isolated are you that you don't know that your idiotic comments about legalized marijuana wouldn't play well with a majority of Americans? So it's probably the case that even individuals that aren't politically astute, know that pharmaceutical companies are some of the most evil corporate entities in existence. Uh, it, you know, saying that big pharma is evil is akin to saying water is wet. It's It's just a statement that everyone accepts as truth because it is true. Now, you don't really get a sense of how evil These pharmaceutical companies are, you don't really realize just how bereft of humanity and empathy they really are until you learn about the internal dynamics of some of these companies. Now, there's an article from the Independent that gives us some insight into the political tactics of one drug company, Aspen, and what they report is absolutely disturbing. So they report that leaked internal emails appear to show employees at one of the world's leading pharmaceutical companies Calling for celebration over price hikes of cancer drugs, an investigation has revealed. Staff at Aspen Pharmacare reportedly plotted to destroy stocks of life-saving medicines during a price dispute with the Spanish Health Service in 2014. In a confidential email published by The Times, an Aspen employee appeared to write, We've signed new reimbursement and price agreement successfully. Price increases are basically on the line with European target prices. Lucarin a bit higher. Let's celebrate." When bargaining over drug prices in Spain, the pharmaceutical giant is said to have threatened to stop selling the cancer treatments unless the health minister agreed to price rises of up to 4,000%, reported Spanish online newspaper El Confidencial Digital at the time. The price increases were made possible by a loophole that allows drug companies to change the price of medicines if they are no longer branded with the same name. The loophole is designed to make drugs cheaper once their patents have expired. But if drug companies have no competition, they are free to raise prices as well. A ruling by the Italian competition watchdog found Aspen had taken an aggressive approach to negotiations in the country. (laughs) You don't say. You have the employees of a drug company celebrating when they raise the cost of a drug that saves lives, saves the lives of cancer patients. This is... A unique evil that can only manifest within capitalistic systems. I mean, this is what unfettered capitalism gets you. It gets you a system where big corporations are a replacement to big government, and they're just as fascistic as the most totalitarian regime you could imagine. They claim that, you know, these types of things, they just won't happen because when you have competition, well... If one company wants to raise the prices on, you know, drugs that are life-saving uh, for cancer patients, well, then the market will sort it all out. There's another company that will come along uh, and they will replace that company who's being too greedy. But the problem is that what happens if there's just one company? What happens when there's no competition? This is what happens. It's horrible. What these drug companies are doing. However, this isn't the only way that the pharmaceutical industry and pharmaceutical companies are screwing us over, because The Independent reports on another article. They state pharmaceutical companies are causing biased information to be given to doctors about the efficacy of drugs, causing an epidemic of misinformed practitioners that is costing hundreds of thousands of lives. Across the world, it has been claimed the number of over 75s being admitted to the hospital due to adverse drug reactions is one in three, and a quarter of these patients will die as a result of these injuries. Now, the question when you read this is, where's the governments around the world? Why haven't world leaders come together and tried to rein in these pharmaceutical companies? Because, you know, I can't speak for other countries, but looking at the United States... It's easy to see why they're ripping us off when you follow the money. So when you look at the pharmaceutical industry, specifically with regard to how much they're spending on elections, the answer becomes incredibly clear. So in 2016 alone, they donated more than $12 million to Democrats and over $15 million to Republicans, but that's just on campaign spending. They've spent more than $200 million dollars per year on lobbying since 2007. So they buy off the United States government, they buy off third world leaders, they take advantage of European democracies. And you know there there becomes a point where we need to stop referring to this type of behavior as greed because if greed becomes so bad that it's indistinguishable from evil, we just need to call it what it is. This is evil, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but these companies they exhibit absolutely no semblance of humanity they don't care about human human suffering i i get that corporations you know they have a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value but corporations they're headed by human beings who are supposed to be empathetic to human suffering i mean if you're a human being you know that you don't like to suffer You want you or one of your family members to get treatment if you have cancer, you want them to be able to afford or to have access to drugs that are affordable, and yet these people are so greedy that it just, I'm done calling it greed, it's evil. This is evil. It's not borderline evil, this is just evil. There's no other way to explain it. So, you know, when I read the story, I was repulsed. They're basically holding a gun to the heads of these countries like Spain And they're telling them either you accept this price or else there's no other options you know you just don't get this drug so accept the price increase or your citizens who need this drug will die it is incredibly reprehensible i think that this is just the failure of our species of humanity that we let this go on it's an atrocity Ever since President Trump decided to illegally and unconstitutionally bomb a Syrian airfield, the media has pushed this idea that if you are against those strikes, then you're against humanitarian issues. You don't care about the suffering of Syrian children. So they've kind of set up this False dichotomy to where if you're against intervention and you're against war, then you're the bad guy. You want more suffering to ensue, but if you are in favor of intervention, then uh you're the good person. You want to make sure that we rescue those Syrian children. And the problem with this is if we get involved in Syria, that will lead to more civilian deaths because... Wars ultimately lead to death and destruction and us getting involved will not make matters any better. And the media has constantly pushed this narrative because, you know, the political establishment on the left and the right, they are in lockstep with the Pentagon who's currently pushing for war. Now, I think the perfect example of The media trying to push this narrative uh, can be found on CNN with Kate Boudouin. She wants for the children of Syria to be able to play and go to school. She's pleading for help.
2: So you say, you see these, you hear that plea from her, you see the images coming out of Syria, and you think the best policy for the United States right now is to do nothing.
1: Does the media care about humanitarian issues? No. If they do, then they're horribly misguided because there is no such thing as a humanitarian war. That's propaganda. That's what our government, that's what the Pentagon tells us to uh, gin up public support for their interventionist foreign policies, and it's not acceptable. And if the media and pundits in the media did, in fact, care about suffering, care about children and women being slaughtered, then... I want to know where their outrage is for these humanitarian issues. The first one is in Myanmar. So, Muslims are currently undergoing a genocide in Myanmar. They're being slaughtered, women and children. Uh, They're being raped. And it is a situation that is horrific. So, The Intercept explains the Rohingya Muslim minority in the northern Rokin state have been shot, stabbed, starved robbed raped and driven from their homes in the hundreds of thousands in december while the world focused on the fall of aleppo more than a dozen noble laureates published an open letter warning of a tragedy in rakhine amounting to ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. In February, a report by the United Nations documented how the Burmese army's attacks on the Rohingya were widespread as well as systematic, thus indicating the very likely commission of crimes against humanity. More than half of the 101 Rohingya women interviewed by the UN investigators across the border in Bangladesh said they had suffered rape, or other forms of sexual violence at the hands of security forces. They beat and killed my husband with a knife, one survivor recalled. Five of them took off my clothes and raped me. My eight-month-old son was crying of hunger when they were in my house because he wanted to breastfeed, so to silence him, they killed him too, with a knife. Now, obviously, you know, if you're a human, then your heart will break when you hear about that story, when you hear about the suffering that's going on. However, the media hasn't really given this story much attention. They haven't covered it. You don't see you know, widespread outrage about this genocide occurring like you do when it comes to Syria. And this is because the Pentagon, the military-industrial complex, they want to create support for intervention in Syria because they've been salivating over Syria for a really long time. It's what they want. Now, am I implying that we should be trying to push the media to uh, get us involved in Myanmar? Of course I'm not, because if we intervene there, then we're only going to make matters worse, because by bombing a country, there will be civilian casualties. But what I am saying is that if the media did, in fact, care about humanitarian crises, then they would cover this issue They would talk about it, and, you know, just talking about it can do a lot. If there's international outrage, which would be facilitated by the media actually covering it, then maybe the Burmese army would be inclined to stop, or at least hold back a little bit. But the media doesn't care. They care about doing what the military-industrial complex wants. But, I mean, since the Pentagon wants a war with Syria, all of a sudden, we're humanitarians. But, I mean, if they want to talk about Syria— Let's talk about Syria because I've got another humanitarian crisis for you, one that we started. So according to The Intercept, Syrian activists and first responders accused the United States of killing dozens of civilians in an airstrike that mistakenly targeted a mosque in the rebel-held village of Al Jannah on the evening of March 16th. Confronted with these claims, a Pentagon spokesman, Navy Captain Jeff Davis, told The Intercept that they were mistaken. The area was extensively surveilled prior to the strike in order to minimize civilian casualties, Davis said. We deliberately did not target the mosque, But as Human Rights Watch reported this week, witnesses in Al Jannah said that the building destroyed by two armed Reaper drones firing Hellfire missiles was the newly built Omar ibn al-Khattab mosque where about 300 civilians had gathered for the Muslim night prayer. At least 38 people were killed in the attack, which included the dropping of a 500-pound bomb. While the U.S. authorities appear to have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the building they attacked, they also appear to have inadequately understood the pattern of life in the area, argues Human Rights Watch. The U.S. seems to have gotten several things fundamentally wrong in this attack, and dozens of civilians paid the price, Oli Salvong, the Deputy emergencies Director at Human Rights Watch, said in a statement. According to the Pentagon's own data, the U.S.-led coalition bombing Syria and Iraq has killed between 102 and 396 civilians in 18,645 strikes from August 2014 to the end of February. The three new reports on the bombing of al Janah suggest that the actual number of civilians killed in American bombings could be far higher. There was universal outrage from the Democratic Party, from the Republican Party, from the media when Assad killed his own civilians, allegedly, but when we kill more civilians, there's no outrage. I mean, certainly, the media has talked about this briefly, but it isn't garnering the attention that Assad's attack generated, and this is because we were looking to demonize Assad, and he's a bad person. You don't really have to do that. He does that on his own, but we wanted to demonize him uh, without an investigation. We wanted to say that he had attacked his own c- uh, citizens with chemical weapons. We didn't even want to bother having an independent investigation, yet when we kill civilians in Syria— And Iraq, there's no outrage. So, to all of the people in the mainstream media who want to lead us into another war that potentially will be never ending with another country, ask yourself this. Do we really care about humanitarian issues or are we just doing the bidding of the military industrial complex? Because if you did care about these issues, if you are a humanitarian like you purport to be, you would be talking about these issues. You would be just as outraged at the genocide being committed in Myanmar. You'd be just as outraged when we kill civilians as you are when Assad kills civilians. So I want to know where the media's outrage is when it comes to these humanitarian issues that we're not talking about. Hey, everyone. So I am here with Tim Black, host of No Sellouts with H.A. Goodman. And of course, he is the host of Tim Black TV. Tim, it has been a really long time since we talked. Um, I think it was the primaries, but you filled in for me last summer and whatnot.
0: Dude. Well, first of all, Mike, man, thank you so much for having me on the show, man. Thank you you for being on. I'm still pissed off at the Democratic Party. And I know that you're the
1: same way because... Both of our videos are kind of the same in terms of content. Like, we still equally criticize Trump.
0: We still equally criticize Democrats. Um, And in one of my videos, I'm like, well, yeah, I'm I'm still pissed off. I I hate hate to admit it, bro. In the beginning, I was a little hesitant to to criticize Trump because I felt everyone else was laying in on him so hard that I was like, you know what? Let me see what he's going to do. But God, Mike, he just kept doing stuff. You know, like he just continued. So I talked to Lee Camp about it because I noticed Lee Camp had finally started to hit him. And I said, Lee, man, we don't want to be like mainstream media, man. And he said, Tim, and, and 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 this was great. He said, Tim, just make it about the policy. Make it about the bad policies. And if you do that, if you, you know, you won't sound like, I don't know, what's his name? Um. Uh, what's his name? God, Trevor Noah, or the 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 you know you won't sound like these guys who just beat up on him daily on stupid stuff like his hand size, you know, and just go for really cheap shots like you know you won't sound like that. So I mean, yeah, now I'm coming for him because he's done so many. He gutted EPA. Oh God, he you know he HUD, he cut HUD. Now now he's dropping. Then he did the Tomahawks, and now you got the Moab. I mean, dude, that's it. I mean. I mean, I mean, some of those picks I let slide because, gosh, some of Obama's picks suck too, but like his suck more. <laughs> yeah. You know,
1: the thing about Trump is that he seems like he's doing things just for the sake of being an asshole. Just <laughs> simple things that you don't have to do that don't really, they don't, I mean, very few people benefit from them, but... You're doing it to be an asshole, like when he cuts certain types of, like he is repealing um, or doing away with one of the rules that Obama implemented that uh, prevents, um, or no, no, let me re-explain this. So basically, prior to Trump coming in, corporations had to prove that they were abiding by an act that prevents discrimination against women and LGBT people. And um, he just did away with it. So now, if you're a company that wants a federal contract with the government, you don't have to prove that you uh, don't discriminate against women. He just did away with that. I mean, who's going to, like, does he think he's going to generate support among the crowd of people in the United States that are pro-discrimination against women? The two people, you know, that are very, you know, overtly sexist? I mean, it it makes no sense. Why would you do that unless you just want to be a dick? You know, it's little things that make no sense to me,
0: that I can't explain. Yeah, like, no, first of all, I didn't know about that. And second of all, I agree with you again. Like like you said, like we usually on the same side of issues. Dude, what's the point of releasing that uh, requirement? Like, do you think it's too hard for companies to prove something that they should already be doing? Like, come on, man, like that should be something that is part of the business philosophy that they want, you know, diversity, that they want different people. They want to support that. They should already be doing it. That should be like something like, oh, yeah, we do that. Don't even, you know, check, check mark, you know, because come on, we're, we're an ethical company and we support, you know, we support all people. We want the best people and they happen to be all people. So, yeah, man, I agree, I agree with, you, with you, Mike. Right. And one thing that just popped into my mind, because there's so many little things that he's doing that it's hard to keep track of all
1: of them. But I've been trying to cover. Um, So Obama had one rule in place that protected um, endangered species. And one of those was the uh, the bee, the bumblebee, I believe. Um, One of them, one of the bees is in danger. Uh, But anyways, (laughs) maybe you know more about that than me. But uh, Obama just put in a new um, regulation to protect them because they just got moved to the endangered species list. And then when Trump went in and froze all federal regulations, um, you know, he could have went through and reviewed some of them. Uh, he chose to ignore the B one. And still, we don't know if there is protection for uh, bumblebees yet, if that is the bee. Um, so just little things, it's like, who would be against this? I don't think you're going to find much pushback against, uh, you know, people who are anti bumblebee, you know, the, the one person in the country that you can right. find. Uh, who is, you know, vehemently against bumblebees. So it's just little things that I don't know. What is the point? You're just being a dick. There's no other explanation.
0: (laughs) I was thinking about the bears, like, that horrible plan, like, you could go in and shoot bears while they hibernate. Like, dude, I mean, like you said, dick move, right? Right. Why why do you need to do that? If you're a hunter, like, Like, don't don't you... Aren't you accustomed to shoot stuff that's alive, like it's awake? It's knowing that, you know, it's, you know, I mean, where's the sport in that for hunters? And if we have such an overpopulation of bears, isn't it another way that we would handle that besides creeping into their caves while they're sleeping? It just seems like a horrible thing to do. Like, like you said, just to be, you know, just to be an asshole. Absolutely. Absolutely. So,
1: I mean, he, I think that like with you, with, um, you were, reluctant to kind of criticize him for certain things. I think all of us were because we do want to we don't want to appear as though we're partisan hacks. Like that's kind of my thing. Like I don't want to just attack Trump because he's Donald Trump and he's a Republican. You know, I gave him a chance and he blew it within like a couple of weeks. Um and well, I I have to be fair, of course, when I say give him a chance, I was very like um <laughs> I was watching everything he was doing basically. But, I mean, like, we don't want to appear as though we're partisan hacks, so we're not going to attack him just because, like you were talking about how, you know, they they make fun of him for the dumbest things possible. You know, where we, we actually have to focus on the things that are important. Like, I don't know. Like, okay, I think the tax return thing, I, I think Kyle from Secular Talk had a great segment where he talked about the protests on uh, Trump's tax returns, how people really want him to release it. Why aren't they... Instead of protesting his tax returns, which we all agree he should release, why not protest the bombs that he's dropping? I mean, all the civilians that he's killing. So it, it's it's frustrating to see him doing really horrible things. But the main things that are being focused on in the mainstream media is how he um, said he said something stupid, or and Sean Spicer he made another gaffe and whatnot. And I covered that too. But I mean, like if you're the mainstream media instead of cheerleading him on when he's dropping the mother of all bombs, just maybe you don't take everything that the Pentagon and the White House tells you uh, and just accept it as gospel, maybe actually push back, do some research, look for evidence yourself. I mean, whatever happened to journalists actually investigating? But you don't get that if you watch the main three uh, networks Um, and less and less people are watching those main three networks, which is why we are being demonetized right now because we're the alternative and they wanna, they wanna protect the
0: status quo. Yeah, their numbers took a hit, bro, and they, they want those numbers to go back up, and some of them are now coming to the internet. If you notice, when you go look up stories, you're doing your research, a lot more people are making videos now. They're trying to compete with us, man. You you go to you go to New York Times. They got videos now. You go to Huffington Post. Everybody's got videos. I'm like, wow, everybody's everybody's doing videos. Go to MSNBC videos. Goodness gracious, CNN video. I'm like, okay. So now you now you see the the uh, the business upside to it. Of course, they're not, they don't have any personalities, Mike. So you know they just, just sound like it's almost computer generated when they do it. But um, just to the point when you said about Kyle. And the tax returns. I just did my first video on Trump's tax returns. The only reason why I did it, because it's tax time. That's the only reason why I did it. And someone said we don't, you know, people don't care about his taxes. I think it's important only because, only because it's tax time, and only because he's the only president who hasn't done it since Nixon. And since he's been lying and flip-flopping on so much crap, I wanted to hit him on it. I wanted to say, look, guys, you Trump people who support me, who watch my stuff, you need to question why he's so uh, vehement about not releasing him. Like, come on, dude. We want this problem to go away. The longer he does this, the longer it stays here. We want it gone. So it's not so much I really want to know what he made. I don't care what he made. It's more than what I made, Mike. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? But let's get the conversation over with. I felt the same way about Hillary with the transcripts. I didn't let I didn't that let shit, let go, shit either. go either. So I'm not gonna let and so so I feel fine about it. But yeah, I care more about the bombs. But Mike, if we care more about the bombs or if the rest of the country cares about the bombs now, they gotta admit they didn't give a shit when Obama was doing it. And that's probably why you don't see <clears throat> any sponsored protests about the bombs. Because heck man, a lot of Democrats are warhawks too. They're warmongering too. So they're actually happy that Trump bombed.
1: Oh yeah, they are,
0: and you know. That
1: frustrates me because the lack of scrutiny that Obama received among the left when he was dropping bombs, it frustrates me because when we come out and denounce Donald Trump dropping bombs, it makes us look like hypocrites if they don't know where we're coming from. Like, for example, I had a comment on my channel saying, oh, yeah, you're talking about Donald Trump being a warmonger because I called Donald Trump a bloodthirsty warmonger, which he is. But, you know, uh, somebody commented and said, oh, I bet you weren't calling out Obama for being a bloodthirsty war and bombing Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. And, yeah, actually, I was. I I was talking about that, too. It's just like, unlike the hacks in the media, uh, I'm consistent. I call them out if they're Democrat. I call them out if they're Republican. Those bombs don't, uh, you know, they don't change. You know, they still kill people regardless of the party affiliation of the president. So my opinion isn't going to change. I'm not going to be hack and say, well, you know, Obama did it, but he was more careful. No, Obama dropped bombs, and they killed many, many civilians. Uh, I am outraged just as much now that Trump is doing it.
0: Yeah, I think what we got to do is we got to take the extra 30 seconds to a minute and tell them that in the video, you know, because they, they're they so used to seeing, seeing people who are two-faced, who are uh, hypocrites, who are, <laughs> you know, they remember, they just probably watched Rachel Maddow and was like, oh, here she go. You know, so we, we have to take the time, man, and you should definitely do it, man, because, you know, you're a straight shooter. So let them know they're watching a the straight shooter and, and feel free to hit Obama hit Obama, did hit Trump. I don't know. I mean, you know, just so they know, because we are the last defense, bro. I really feel that way. Like, independent media, you, there, there's several other people, H.A. Goodman, all of us, man, we are, we're independent media. And if we if we aren't if respected, if we don't stake our claim, they're going to all go back to mainstream media. And I can't have that happen, bro. I got kids. Right. And, you know, my whole thing is
1: I was, I was thinking about this, you know, last week with all of this uh, YouTube advertiser crisis nonsense, is that what if you, we all of the independent media shows just went away? Then, you know, all the only narrative that people would get with respect to Syria, for example, is just the mainstream media narrative. And then to see how much public opinion would be affected by that immediately, I don't know. You know what I mean? Because it, it's difficult to know. If you have all of the media marching you know in unison with Donald Trump with the political establishment trying to beat the war drums and there's nobody speaking out with at least a small audience you know even just 10,000 people i mean what you know what are the implications for the country it's it's incredibly terrifying it really is
0: it is. And uh, it makes you wonder. Every once in a while, I think about how it was, I don't know, 40 years ago, Uh, you know, before the Internet and how people like, you know, and even before TV, before cable news, man. I mean, people listen to news by radio. About, just imagine how easy it was to manipulate the public. I mean, you had like one or two stations, three stations or people didn't even have TVs. Uh, gosh, man. I mean, if you look back at our history and all the atrocities, uh, all the crap we did as a country, you can kind of figure out why it got done. No opposing voice. You can't get the word out. Heck, man, like they could get away with anything. So it's so important for independent media, man. We got to support it. That's why we got to continue to shout each other out and keep amplifying each other's voice, man. And Heck, man, I tell everybody, man, subscribe to Mike M., subscribe to H.A. Goodman, subscribe to all independent media. Heck, you should have more than one channel on your dial, dude. Don't don't feel like you can only watch one person. Right.
1: And, you know, I'm, I made this comment. What I said was that, you know, if, you, if one of us falls, if one of the main, uh, not mainstream, one of the independent shows falls, one of the progressive independent shows falls, we're all vulnerable. So... I did a video where i linked all of the Patreons for like all of us anyone i could think of that had a patreon that does a progressive show because it's like we all have to kind of stick together because if you support one of us you're kind of supporting all of us in a way because we all are we're a progressive community but i mean together if you combine all of our shows all the progressive shows there it's millions of people you know i'm, I'm counting like you know the big ones like tyt and whatnot, RT uh, viewers like Lee Camp show and whatnot. I mean, if you combine all of us, it's huge. So we all have to make sure that you know we're all in this together and we're all pushing back against the mainstream media because you you can't get anything done unless you're you have big enough numbers, really. So that's why you know it is important. Uh, but I won't take up too much of your time, Tim. Can you tell them where to find you?
0: Yeah, guys, go to TimBlackTV.com. I'm also on YouTube as Tim Black TV or TBTV. That's under Tim's Take Live. But if you got any problems finding me, just go to TimBlackTV.com. I have your link up there for my YouTube stuff. Thank you, everyone, for having me. I appreciate you, Mike.
1: Well, that marks the end of the episode. If you've made it this far, then you truly are a kick-ass human being. <laughs> so before we go i want to now take the time to thank all of the individuals that decided to sign up to contribute to the show on paypal and patreon so this week we have aaron den aaron marshall adar butel adrian perez ahmed Barré, alex alexandra Rowe, alexis lopez alfonso nesbit jr andrew fritz Angel Williams, Anthony Swisher, Anthony Tillman, Arlo Millich, Armin Salimi, Ashley Hudson, Barbara Edelstein, Bobby Tate, Bogdan Zagulin, Bowler, Boyd Reynolds, Brett Dunn, Brian Cartier, Burns Lolar, Cato, Charles B. Bowman, Charles Fleming, Sherry M. Burgess Twitty, Chi Sexton, Chris Lee, Craig Driscoll, Dalton Hansen, Daniel Valente, Daryl Presley, David Leary, David Ramos, David Spies, Don Lorraine McGrath, Dean Presley, Derek Hill, Dirk Dornich, Dimitri N, Eben Kim, Ellison Capers, Ellie, Imad Garavi, Emmanuel Munoz, Erica Sheftik, Espen Bodal, Eugene, Fanny Isaacson, Francis Joaquin, Gary Worrell. Gavin Allen, George Sores, Jerry V, Gordon Bradley, Guillame Biad, Guillermo A. Rios, Haley Phillips, Holly Engelman, Ivan Kozhikov, James Martin, Janice, Javier B. Jeannie Vale, Jermaine Lee, Jesse Benjamin, Joanne Madsen, Jody Thompson, Joel Carver, Joseph Houston Rafferty, Justin Diaz, Justin Kimball, Justin Murphy, Kathleen Minix, Katie Abtoms, Kay Padden, Kirsten Worstad, Kyle Axtell, Kyle Monville, Lalitha Coetzee, Levi Rybolov, Marcy Marcus Dudney, Marcus Larson, Marie Jabauer, Marcus Averstead, Marta Krozik, Matthew Hazlett, Matthew Kuchler, Matthew Shearer, Maya Bergstrom, Melissa Kissick, Melissa Wallace, Michael Tracy, Miriam L. Schoenfeld, Maj Saul, Morgan Spicer, Nagajan, Natalie Roy, Nathan Schrepler, Neil Watson, Pablo Parham Pulati, Patrick Flynn, Paul Corlett, Peter Kimo, Peter Schottman, Roe, Randy Martinez, Robert Gentgen, Robert Peoples, Rohinton Hinton Ekal, Roman Sinomer. Ross Ivor, Ryan Harper, Ryle Moore, Sebastio Rocha A. Nito, Samantha Garcia, Sarah Grenier, Scott Hunter, Scott Clark, Scott DeSimone, Sapir Amor Poor, Sergey Creepin, Sheila Lima, Sean Williams, Simon Montwheeler, Stacy Barrett, Stephen Crismer, Susan Garbowitz, Sidney Brahmavar Taylor Sunderman Tegan Blaine Litcott Terrace McLaurin Thaddeus Hawkins Till Bach, Tim Melkert Timothy Woodson Tommy Austin Tracy Loftus, At TV Bossy Pants William J Rosa Wyatt Ulberg, Yolanda Collins Yumi and Zack Overman. So thank you to each and every single one of these individuals. I individually acknowledge. All of you, because I think that what you're doing, um, it's so great. I'm I'm really thankful to you and your kindness is truly heartwarming. Um, The the fact that you care about The Humanist Report and independent media is great. And even if you can't support my show, The Humanist Report, the fact that you are supporting other shows means just as much to me. Uh, You guys are so great. Thank you all so much. So that's it for the episode. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Uh, I will see you next week. Take care and have a great day.